Okay. Oh, it's good to see everybody today. Let's pray together and uh, we will begin, okay? Father, we uh, come before you now, Lord. We thank you for uh, the fact that you are the fount of every blessing, Lord. We thank you that you are the source of life and love and liberty, Lord, as Scripture tells us very plainly that it is for freedom that we have been set free. Only do not use your liberty as an occasion for sin. And so, God, we just thank you for the glorious liberty that we have in the gospel. And uh, today, Lord, we just pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, give us strength and uh, give us uh, the mind of Christ as we look at your word now and as we discern the various uh, things about eschatology. May you be glorified in everything we say and do, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, all right, so this is the way it's going to work from here on out in terms of uh, systematic theology. Uh, Believe it or not, we only have a couple more sessions. Uh, We're going to talk about the return of Christ today. Uh, Next week, what I hope to do is I hope to kind of present the eschatological systems like we did last week. But next week, I want to focus on uh, strengths and weaknesses of the system of eschatology, uh, of different eschatologies. And just kind of tell you, you know, once again, where I see uh, either the greatest weakness or the greatest strength, depending on you know, where your eschatology is at. So that's kind of where we're headed with that. Uh, but today, I'm coming back to my uh, PowerPoint that I only made it through a couple slides, and uh, this is really where I needed to get to was uh, the second coming of Christ. And so I want to talk about three aspects of the second coming, that is the nature of the coming, the timing of the coming, and the hope of the coming. Now, you see the word up there, parousia, right? Uh, that is the Greek word that means coming, and that is the, the, the word that is preferred in the New Testament when the apostles talk about the return of Christ. They use the word parousia when they speak of his coming. Uh, and so, you know, I also want to use the word parousia just because if you go on to study uh, eschatology, let's say in a systematic theology or something, you're going to see this word over and over and over. This is kind of the operative word that they use for the second coming. Uh, the nature of the second coming, very important that we believe in these principles right here. And that is that the second coming of Christ is these four things. This is what makes for um, uh, orthodoxy. This is what is orthodox in the historic Christian faith. That the return of Christ is a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ to the earth. That's what it is. And so... um, uh, really want to focus a little bit here on the idea of the sudden return of Christ. Um, the uh, Remember when we did the different camps, and maybe just quickly I'll, I'll throw them up here, just so that we have a, a category here. So you have your premillennialism, right? You have your amillennialism, remember? And you have your postmillennialism. Um, and under premillennialism, really, there are a couple categories. I'm going to put the two main ones, which is uh, pre-trib and post-trib, right, uh, for tribulation, which says that in, under premillennialism, um, uh, people believe in either a pre-tribulational uh, rapture, uh, which basically would be sort of a secret coming of Christ to the earth to rapture his people out. 
Um, and then you have those that believe in a post-tribulational uh, rapture. Uh, I personally don't have any problems with the word rapture. Um, my problem is, is more with the timing of, of, of Jesus gathering his people. The word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. That's not a biblical term. It comes from a Latin word, uh, rapturus, which is really capitalizing on that idea of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about Christ gathering us together with him in the clouds. Uh, and so that's what, and then that word, uh, that Latin word, took off in English, rapture. And so, you know, we've made movies on the rapture, <laughs> right? It's become very popular in evangelicalism to believe in this idea that before Jesus returns, uh, uh, he will take his people out of the world uh, seven years before his physical return to the earth. Um, that is the position, at least. Um, and there's no question, if you look at um, uh, passages like this in Matthew 24, 44, Matthew 25, 13, for this reason also you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Um, also, this other verse, be on alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And so these passages are used, I think, by Jesus to put the church in a state of expectancy. Uh, that, 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 that we do not know when Christ is going to return. And so I guess that's the first principle, is that... Um, the precise timing of the return of Christ is not known. Uh, it is not for us to know. Uh, we do not know the day nor the hour. And anybody that begins to tell you we can calculate on the basis of this and that and the other thing, you got to really be careful at that point and know that you're listening to something that is directly in violation of Scripture when it comes to what we can know about the return of Christ. We know that the return of Christ is certain, but we don't know the precise time of the return of Christ. Okay, we know that there's some general indications of the return of Christ. And um, uh, just to make you uh, um, aware of this, but in theology, uh, people debate the nature of the coming of Christ in terms of its eminency and its suddenness. And what I mean by that is that in light of everything that Scripture says, sort of precedes the coming of Christ, um, you know, people have asked the question, do, is it proper to believe in an eminent return? Which means Jesus could, let's go back 2,000 years, Jesus could have returned at any moment in time at that point, right? Um, Burkhoff, for example, and then Grudem following Burkhoff and others following Burkhoff would say, there are at least six things that Scripture talks about that need to take place before the return of Christ. Um, it, for example, if you believe in a literal tribulation period, you believe the tribulation has to happen before Christ returns. <laughs> it's that simple. Uh, so the, the, the parousia, the actual coming of Christ to the earth, seems to be preceded by several things. So let's talk about these things one by one. Number one, it would be uh, the preaching of the gospel to all nations. So in Mark 13, Matthew 24, Jesus makes it very clear that the gospel has to go out to all the nations before the Son of Man comes back. Um, now, theologians, especially of a preterist, of a preterist interpretation, so let's put preterism, especially over here, right? I hope that's how you... 
<coughs> Preterism is the idea that much of the content of prophecy in the New Testament has already been fulfilled. So, like, for example, Matthew uh, 20, turn with me to Matthew 24, because that's kind of one of the crux passages that deal with all of this, right? Matthew 24, uh, you look, for example, uh, in verse 29, just to kind of show you um, how they, many, many folks will take this from a preterist position, right? But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers will be shaken, heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four corners, for the four winds, uh, from one end of the sky to the other. Uh, only reason I mention this is to show you, uh, to show you the extent of preterism that a preterist interpretation takes this passage out of Matthew, not referring to what you right now are thinking in your mind it's referring to, which is what? Huh? The second coming, coming, right? They, from a a preterist interpretation, they say, no, that's actually not talking about the second coming of Christ. That's actually talking about Christ returning in judgment uh, in 70 A.D., and so that's how extreme preterism can get, is it? to me, it takes a clear passage that is signifying the return of Christ when he gathers his elect from the four winds of the earth, right, and returns with signs in the sky. And they're saying, no, that's just apocalyptic language that shows that Jesus Christ was going to come back after his exaltation. Uh, so basically, it's almost like an invisible coming in judgment to the earth expressed through the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, okay? Uh, that's, um, that's the way that they would interpret that. So that's why preterism is, an, is at least important to understand. Where are they coming from? Why are they interpreting it that way? Uh, I reject preterism, by the way. Uh, and full preterism actually believes that the second coming has happened and that we are not looking forward to a future bodily, physical return of Christ to the earth. Categorically, the Christian church throughout the history of the church has deemed that heresy. Okay, so just showing you, you know. Uh, are there any full preterists today? Uh, I can't think of any that you would even know, you know what I mean? Are there partial preterists today? Yes, uh, I, would say, I would say some amillennials would qualify. <coughs> Check them off. Some amillennials would qualify as partial Right? Partial preterist. Partial preterist. And basically what they would say is that some of the things, at least some of the things that are mentioned in passages like Matthew 24 have been fulfilled. They have happened. 70 AD did fulfill some of those things. Well, I, I'm not going to sit here and sift through every point that they say has and has not been fulfilled. Um, but uh, that's essentially what they, what they hold to. Now, I think, Juan, you had a question. Uh, I just need to clarify. Yep. So, preterist is basically meaning that you believe some, not or, or all, 
of the preconditions have been met for the second coming of Christ. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Preterists believe that all of the, the conditions that are necessary for the return of Christ have been met. So, for example, the first one I named, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, what they would say is that this, this has already happened. It happened at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the nations were gathered there and they heard the gospel being preached. That, in essence, is the preaching of the gospel going to all the nations. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians just to show you a proof text of where sometimes people go with that. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything of you. I don't know that that's the verse I was thinking about. Uh, there's a verse actually that says that actually um, it has gone out into the whole world. If you guys look that up or you guys know what I'm talking about, um, it, but it's passages like this. Let's say the word has gone out in every place or it's gone to the whole world. And what they're saying is that that fulfills the preaching of the gospel to the whole, all the nations. It's passages like that that they use to describe that. I would say, no, it has not. So in other words, um, turn with me to Matthew 28. The reason why I don't believe that's true is because it seems that the Great Commission is congruent with the termination of the age. So we know the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, if that has already been fulfilled, then why does Jesus need to give us this promise? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what I'm saying is that it seems as if the empowering presence of Christ is designed to go with us to the end of the age as we execute the Great Commission. Okay. Yes, sir. I, I found that verse in the okay. Romans ten eighteen. Mm-hmm. I say surely they I think have it's Colossians. Colossians one. Well, go ahead. Uh, indeed they have. Their voice has gone into all the earth mm-hmm. and their words to the ends of the world. Um, I, that's a good one, um, but the Colossians one is the one I was thinking. Do you have it, Chris? It's Colossians one five. One five. There we go. Not Thessalonians. One, one five and six. I'll have that. Oh man. Oh man. Um, because of the, well, I guess since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven and of which you previously heard the, in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it's been doing in yeah. you also since the day you heard it mm-hmm. and understood the grace of God in truth. So they try to bring in the element of, look, the gospel has m- taken the message of salvation to a, in, a, in a transnational way to the whole world. And the pinnacle of that, again, is Pentecost when the nations are gathered in Jerusalem and they hear the preaching of the gospel in their own tongue. And they would say that fulfills, you know, the necessity for the gospel to be preached to all the world. But it just doesn't seem uh, to me 
Like that's what scripture is saying. The other thing is that, again, we believe that the great tribulation has to precede the second coming. And so, of course, Matthew 24, again, 15 to 22, I mean, all of the things that Jesus stipulates there um, also has to happen. Same thing, Matthew 24, verse 23 to 24, false, false prophets, the working of false signs and false miracles, all of these things. So people point to that and they say, well, that certainly has been fulfilled in part, right? And so uh, I think this is where we need to understand, I guess, the nature of the tribulation. Um, back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is very important. A lot of people... <coughs> I think to me, a lot of people, they don't really take fully into account um, how Matthew 24 begins and what it is that Jesus has been asked to address, right? If you look at verse 3, for example, Jesus is not asked, how is the world going to end, right? He's asked three different questions, right? He says, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So several things are being said there, right? When is the tribulation going to take place? What is going to be the sign of the parousia? And when is, go- when is the end of the age going to occur? So these are different aspects of the end times, of the last days. And I think it allows for at least some of what Jesus is talking about here To definitely, what I'm saying is that we should expect this age from beginning to end, especially escalating and intensifying as the day approaches, that this age is going to be characterized by antichrists, false prophets, false teaching. We're going to have a world in which there is going to be war, rumors of war, pestilence, disease, all of these signs. Um, my opinion, just like birth pangs, right? Uh, the scripture says these are the beginning of birth pangs. And so I think we're, we right now are, you know, we're feeling those birth pains right now in our generation. But so were the people prior to us. Imagine living in the World War generations. You think, <laughs> you think that as, you know, for example, Pearl Harbor is being invaded, <laughs> The, 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 the survival, the existence of America is being threatened, you know, exactly, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Hitler came, you know, within one moment, really, if he, if he would have overtook a couple more countries, I mean, they said Hitler could have taken over the world. I mean, the, the world was on the brink of Nazi uh, domination. <laughs> I mean, so do you think that at that point you would be saying... We're experiencing tribulation. (laughs) Yeah, you are experiencing tribulation. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there is still not a future technical uh, tribulation period that is coming that, as Jesus says, will be unlike any other time on earth. Um, I don't think 70 AD was unlike any other time on earth. I think it's significant. I think we need to really appreciate 70 AD because it was the destruction of the temple. It was the setting aside of the old, the, the, the transitioning into the new in terms of covenants. Um, but I don't think 70 AD solves everything. You see what I'm saying? So, um, Also, against, against the view that um, uh, 
that these things won't happen, you also have, um, look at point E, signs in the heavens, that goes along with tribulation, but then this, the coming of the man of sin and the rebellion. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, of course you have Daniel chapter 9, you have Matthew chapter 24, you have Thessalonians chapter 2, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you have all these places that seem to clear, and then of course you have Revelation with reference to the beast over and over and over again, which makes it sound like there is in fact a persona that is coming who will be the man of sin, the, the man of lawlessness, who will be the Antichrist. Um, Jesus said that he will be standing uh, in the holy place making an abomination that causes desolation. Um, the reason I raise that is because let's talk about the Antichrist for a second. Uh, under both under premillennialism and under both pre-trib and, and, and post-trib, they believe in a literal anti-Christ. Right? So both do. So... Antichrist, Antichrist is both literal. Right? It's where it gets complicated. <laughs> we keep splicing people in half, you know? Under amillennialism, you have both literal and metaphor. In other words, metaphorical. You have, in other words, under amillennialism, those that believe in a literal Antichrist and those that believe in a metaphorical uh, a metaphorical interpretation of Antichrist. Uh, and I would say under post-millennialism, mainly you have the metaphorical, uh, the metaphorical interpretation. In other words, what they're saying, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, what they're saying is that what Scripture is teaching is not... This is the way that they would even characterize this, right? What they're saying, this part of, of amillennial camps and, and post-millennialism, what these groups are saying is that there is not really a person coming, like a boogeyman is going to come out at the end of the age and he's going to be the Antichrist, right? Um, what they're saying is that it is a principle. It is an influence. It is a power it is, a, it is part of the satanic system of the world, right? And if you keep looking around to try to pin the tail on the Antichrist, <laughs> this was real big in the 80s. Why? Because shortly, or just prior to that, Hal Lindsey published his very, very famous uh, book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth, which sent all of evangelicalism into an eschatological frenzy. Okay, who was alive during that time? <laughs> who was walking with God during that time of hell? <laughs> okay, so... Nancy just confessed to me that she read it. <laughs> I read it too. I mean, I read parts of it. I read actually a different Hal Lindsey book, and it, God used it to get a hold of me, put the fear of God in me about the second coming at least, you know? So metaphorically, just like the spirit of the age. Correct. Okay. The spirit of the age. But, uh, for example, First John chapter 2... Um, oh, no, I'm sorry, First John chapter 4, sorry. <clears throat> I don't know how you guys remember scripture, but for me, a lot of times, it's where it's at at the page. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same side of the page, same section, but wrong, wrong chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so what they're saying is this. You're beginning chapter 4, and you hear what, what, what John is saying. 
He's saying, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, see whether they are of God. Okay, well, what is he talking about there? Do not believe every spirit. How would you interpret that? Do not believe every demon? is So, so inter- believers interacting with demons? How do we flush that out? World system movement, like... Do not believe every world system movement. Cultures moving or whatever belief system they're holding to. Belief system. Philosophy. Philosophy. Well, like you say, if someone tells you something, you need to go look it up before you make sure it lines up with the truth. Yeah, and I think Daniel's onto something there because if you just bear out the context a little bit, right? The context is suggesting that what he's talking about is 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 deeply theological, right? He says, "Do not believe every spirit." See whether the Spirit is from God, because many false prophets, you see that, have gone out into the world. So it has everything to do with teaching, doctrine, right? By this you know the Spirit of God, and this even proves it even further, every spirit that confesses, and that's a technical term in Scripture for doctrinal fidelity, or we could say orthodoxy or unorthodoxy, right? What you confess, right? That Jesus is not from God. That every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Um, Now, he gets a little bit deeper into what that means. Um, Trying to find it here. Um, This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. Now, who has either a King James or a NIV? What do you have, Tony? Verse, Verse uh, 3. And every spirit that confesses, confesses that not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. Where have you have heard that he should come, and even now already is it in the world? Is it in the world? Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Um, the the whole controversy surrounds this idea where it says, you have heard, right? Where's it at? Uh, where is it at? This, of which you have heard that it is coming. See, the NASB is translating it as a neuter noun. It is coming instead of a nominative, <coughs> which would be nominative masculine, which would be he is coming, Right? So it's a difference between a person and a spirit. And so what these camps are saying, the metaphorical camp is saying, is that the way that John taught on the Antichrist was not so much that it's a person, but that it is, a, it is, an, it is an influence. It is a power. It is an Antichrist doctrinal system. It is a heretical spirit that lies upon the world. Right? And that's the way that John seems to present it. Um, Yet the verse I was really looking for was every spirit that, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Uh, I'm just pointing that out because that's important to uh, the letter of John because confessing that Jesus has come in the, in the flesh, well, that tells commentators everything because what John is talking about there is the heresy that he was combating in the first century, which was docetism and Gnosticism, the idea that Jesus did not actually have a physical body. So again, proving that what John is, com- really what he's thinking about is this idea of Gnosticism and Docetism, any concept that Jesus was not fully man, fully man. 
So it's doctrinal, right? And that is what the spirit of Antichrist really is going to come to do. Um, but then again, you know, you have other, other passages. For example, if you go to Thessalonians, you go to, um, let's see here. Uh, in beginning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right, you have an extensive treatment on the man of lawlessness, you know. You can begin, for example, in verse 8. It says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Notice, what is it that is going to destroy the Antichrist? The parousia, the coming, the coming of Christ. That is, the one whose coming is according to the activity of Satan. See, see there it says, the one who is coming. Right? So, Paul has no problem personifying this man of lawlessness. Uh, so, again, I can see where folks understand it as a spiritual influence. I'm personally convinced that it is an actual person. That the Antichrist will be uh, some sort of human figure that will appear on the stage of the last days on the world system, on the world stage, and will be empowered by Satan himself and will lead many people astray. In fact, God says because they follow the Antichrist, God will give them up to delusion, to deception, so that they believe a lie. And uh, I think that's what Revelation is talking about. Is you see the beast and what he does. He's making war. You go back to, uh, for example, Daniel chapter 9. He's making peace treaties with nations. I just don't think you can attribute that to an influence. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. That same chapter in uh, verse 3. Yep. Of man. Yep. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will, come, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Uh, placing himself in the temple of God, that's a big one. You know, what does that mean? Some people believe in a rebuilt temple, and that that's where he will go in to do his business. I'm not sure that I believe that, to be quite honest with you. I think temple here may refer to an apostate church like the Catholic Church, for example. Many of the reformers identified the Pope as the Antichrist. I don't, but I'm just saying I, I don't know that I buy into the future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem theory. Um, that opens up another can of worms. <laughs> we won't go there. Yes, sir? Well, I was just going to ask about rebuilding of the temple. Which, <laughs> yeah. Did you answer it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, honestly, I haven't come to conclusions on all those things. I mean, those are, those are hard, you know. Issues. I mean, you go to Ezekiel 40 and 48, you know, and, and what, how that's interpreted. It seems to me in the New Testament, a lot of that is taken to refer to the building of a spiritual house, the church. So it seems like maybe what this is talking about is the antithesis of the true church, which would be the false church. Yes, sir? Uh, I'm trying to copy down your, your chart. So under the pre-mill, pre-trip, and post-trip, yep. th- there could be the metaphorical understanding of the antichrist no 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 
uh, any pre-millennial, pre-tribulational, post-tribulational person, they believe in a literal Antichrist. So both are literal. Okay, so okay. Yeah. Amillennialism has both a literal group and a metaphorical group. Remember I told you guys that I was blessed to go to Gospel Coalition and, and talk with some of the leading um, uh, millennial scholars in the world, you know, G.K. Beale, Ligon Duncan, Lane Tipton. I talked to all those men, and I, I had them all in front of me. And before they got up and left, I asked them, I just got a question for you guys. <laughs> I said, I need to know, do all three of you agree that the Antichrist is a real person and uh, a literal person? And they all unanimously said yes. Literal person, literal tribulation coming. Okay, so, you know, like I said, I mean, amillennial, post, premillennial, we have a lot in common. Postmillennial, uh, post-millennial not so much because they want to believe more in a preterist interpretation of things, and they want to approach things like the Antichrist as being metaphor, not literal. So, yes, sir? So do you believe that the Pope would be the false prophet? What's that? Do you believe the Pope would be the false prophet? Um, I mean, me personally, uh, no, I don't. You know what I mean? Um, I would never say that. Matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why I disagree with some of the great confessions of the faith. How many of you guys heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? The London Baptist 1689 Confession of Faith. Both of those confessions identify the Pope as the Antichrist, capital A. Not as an Antichrist, like a false teacher or a false prophet. The Antichrist. Right? Um. So all of these things, I think, for me, uh, tell me that... Okay, here's another one. The coming of the son, of, uh, the coming of the man of sin, and the rebellion, the apostasy—that's what we heard of there. Uh, a great falling away. Um, some people have erroneously uh, tried to um, interpret Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three, as a reference to the rapture, where it talks about the great apostasy, um, having to do with the word there, apostasy to fall away. I, they have different ways that they try to spin that, but uh, it's not. It's, it's talking about apostasy. It's not talking about, you know, being caught up or taken away in some way to, to with a rapture. Yeah. That's, that's one of the, uh, that view that you just said, like uh, apostasy. That's like the all-mirror or post-mirror uh, view, right? <clears throat> um, in what way? Meaning um, to say that the, uh, to say that Apostasy is okay. Chapter two begins saying, uh, "Now we beseech you, brethren." Mm-hmm. This is Second Thessalonians chapter two. Uh, by the coming of our Lord and by our gathering together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems though it's that he's saying the return of Jesus Christ and the gathering together will be the uh, rapture. Uh, well, the coming is the parousia, right? And I would just say um, the gathering together happens at the parousia. Right. Based on that verse, that's, that's, one, that's one powerful verse, in my opinion, for looking at the coming of Christ and uh, if you want, you know, just for us to understand our being caught up or being gathered to him or being raptured to him, I believe this verse is saying this happens simultaneously. Right. His coming and our gathering to him happens at the same time. When does it happen? At the coming. Right. Yeah. At the parousia, not at, not at a, 
secret coming seven years prior to the parousia. No. You see? So, but what was your point about all male post I'm sorry. I was saying trying to understand. what you just said just now is the post-trib abuse, the pre-meal post-trib abuse. Pre-meal post-trib, yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. Good point, good point. Uh, the other one that Burkhoff lists here as things that he believes will precede the coming of Christ, mm-hmm. notice letter F. Now, this is very important because he says the salvation of Israel, <laughs> Right? Uh, the, the salvation of Israel is, is, and i got a typo up here. Look at Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. i got a typo up here. Sorry, guys. It's not Romans 12, 12. It's Romans 11, 12. But more importantly, look at verse 25. Right? This is a hotly debated topic, hotly debated uh, passage. Um, this really has to do with... Um, this really, really has to do with um, your hermeneutical approach to Scripture. Um, depending, a lot of times, depending on the way that you interpret this passage, oftentimes determines whether or not you're characterized as either a dispensational type of theologian or a covenantal type of theologian. Okay? Um, for example, let me get into this. Verse twenty-five. For I do not want you to, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of the, this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Now, who is that? The church has been partially hardened. The Jews, right? At least it seems that way, right? And Chris Matthews is like, okay, here we go. <laughs> right? I, you know, part of the, the difficulty up here is how do I do this without showing all my cards, you know? Card, you know let you know how much I'm working on and versus how much I figured out, you know? It's tough. A partial hardness happened to Israel. I believe that is ethnic Jews. It just doesn't make sense any other way. One says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, you cannot interpret Gentiles there as the church, right? The word Gentile there is not synonymous with the church. It's synonymous, I believe, with the elect Gentiles that are being saved and being put into the church, okay? And then he says, and so all Israel will be saved. Look at verse 26. Does anybody have a different translation than and so all Israel will be saved? Huh? Is that your translation? That's what the ESV says? And in this way, it's actually, it's, actually, um, it's actually the same as the NASB. Does anybody have anything else? NIV, King James. What do you have, Marlene? Okay, verse 26. Yep. It says, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. Right, right. shall come out of Zion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Yeah, the, the reason why I'm, I'm, fi- I'm fixating on this, okay, is the word here, and so. Okay, and so all Israel will be saved. 
that phrase, depending on how you translate that, and so the, the Greek word is hutos. It has a little hook going that way. Hutos can be translated to, to talk about the manner in which something is going to happen, or as many people translate it, and then. So we go from interpreting this as either manner, manner, or temporal. So you're either talking about the time or the way that you do this. So in other words, some, some commentators translate it, and then all Israel will be saved after this happens. The NASB, and apparently every translation in here so far that um, people have quoted with the term, and so, is referring to a manner in which this will happen. And so what that means is that by saving Gentiles and putting them into the church, in this way, God's Israel will be saved. It changes the idea that Israel, in the, in the mind of Paul, is comprised of elect Jews and Gentiles. But if you say, and then all Israel will be saved, well, what that means is that after the Gentiles are saved, then we return to Israel, the Jews. See what I'm saying? And so, a slight interpretation matters a lot, uh, lots of ink has been spilt on that debate right there uh, because it it determines are you looking at Israel when it says and so all Israel will be saved when he says and so all Israel now who's he talking about is he going back to the ethnic Jew or is he summing up the people of God as both Jew and Gentile the true Israel of God <laughs> yes sir Verse 26, right after it says, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, he goes on to say, that shall come out of Zion the deliverer, mm-hmm. and shall <coughs> away ungodly from Jacob. Right. So he's talking about Jacob there. Isn't he talking about the physical Israel at that point? What, what he could, he could very well. If he returns back to focusing on the Jews, then he is quoting those old covenant passages in a literal way as referring to literal Jews. The difficulty with that, though, Tony, is that in many other places in Scripture, references to Jacob, references to Israel, references to the nation, right, have, been, have taken on a new meaning as now including the Gentile people of God. Right, so... I think you see that throughout the book of Hebrews. So, eschatology-wise, by this time, when this is happening, both things seem to be in play. Meaning, if, if the deliverance is coming out of Zion, you have the first resurrection... You have to gather together, and you have on the uh, Israelites being delivered because he comes to rescue them from. By that time, the, the battle is happening. I, I don't. I don't know that I would inject all of that. I think what he's just talking about is how God is saving His people. Uh, so when it talks about the liver coming from Zion, I don't think that's talking about Jesus coming out of heaven in the second coming. I, I personally wouldn't interpret it that way. I think it's just talking messianically of the work of the Messiah who did come from heaven to save his people. 
You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It won't be through the second coming. That's my only that's my only thing. Because look at verse 27, this is my covenant with I made with that I made with them when I take away their sin. So that's not just happening at the second coming. <laughs> By then it's over. So I think this is I think this is talking about the way that God saves his people throughout the age and um yeah, and I think it does refer to both Jew and Gentile and how they're both saved in the church of God. Um, yes, ma'am? If God declares them to be saved, then they have to be the new up because if God decrees it, then it's going to happen. And so there could be, so there's ethnic Jews that will not be saved because they have not been decreed. So it has to be talking about the elect, right? It has to be talking about the what? The elect. Well, of course, there's no question about that. So just go back to go go back to I mean just go back to eleven seven for example, right? There's no question that the elect are in view, because look at eleven seven. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So there's no question that God is working along the lines of election. The question is just the rub is who is the who is the elect. Right with all the references to Israel, which one which one refers to ethnic Israel, which one refers to spiritual Israel? Now, I believe personally, go back to chapter nine, that you have to have a category for both ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, or what's been called true Israel. Look at verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So I take verse 6, the first reference there, they are not all Israel. I believe that he's talking there about true Israel, spiritual Israel. I would go so far as to say the church. I know that maybe for some of you guys, it's kind of a, that's a that would be a challenging thing, <laughs> right? And, there, and when he says, who are descended from Israel, that's ethnic Israel. So ethnic Jews are not necessarily part of the true saved Israel of God. Because what's Paul saying? Just just because you're Jewish, that doesn't automatically put you in the saved elect people of God. Yes, sir? So are we talking about Jews and Gentiles? Yes. Jews and Gentiles are the true Israel of God. I would say the truest Israel, who is the truest Israel? Jesus is the true Israel of God. He's called Israel, right? He is the true Israel, messianic Israel. Those who are in him, identified in Jesus, are part of the true Israel of God as well. Yes, sir? So verse 25 is talking about ethnic Israel. Verse 25 of what? Uh, Romans 11. And not the church. Yes. Okay. But then the next verse talking about it's possible verse 26 it's possible that in verse 26 paul goes back to an identification of the true spiritual israel of god we're so out of time (laughs) all i got is smiles robert is smiling chris is smiling everyone's smiling i must have done something really right today (laughs) yes sir <laughs> oh man yeah it's difficult um, 
Um, I do. I do believe um, right now. My position is that there, that God is going to save a future remnant of Jews. How's that? How's that going to happen? I'm not sure. I'll be quite honest with you. Um, I don't know if it's going to be an end time explosion of Jewish revival. Zechariah comes to mind. There's passages that come to mind that seem to maybe substantiate that. You know, I met with a. I met with a. This is this is a. You want to blow your mind type of thing. I met with a missionary, Presbyterian, covenant theology gentleman, who is a missionary to the Jewish people. <laughs> I mean, that's just, I mean, if you understand all that, that's wild, right? And he began talking to me of how he's seeing Jews are streaming to Christ. And so he believes in what some believe, which is more of like a trickling effect, <laughs> where little by little, Individual Jews are being saved in mass, right? Um, but um, you know, I, I can't believe in this idea that you know, for God, there's two people: there's the church, and then there's Israel, and that these are His people. I mean, for the past two thousand years, folks, I mean, you grapple with this, but the past two thousand years, the, sorry to say, the vast majority of Jewish people have perished. So I just, to me, I can't fathom the idea that these are his people. <laughs> there has to be a special, true, spiritual Israel of God that God is saving that will not perish. So we're way over time. And once again, I didn't get that far. But actually, I did. I, I, I kind of went through the content of most of my stuff. So, um, But let's go to worship.